You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. Morning, church. My name is Josh. I'm the lead pastor here at Hill City Church. I'm so excited that you could be with us for the start of this brand new teaching series, Simple Gospel. I'm excited for this one. We'll start off with a question. What's something that people think is Christian, but it isn't necessarily Christian? Just think about that for a moment. There's all kinds of things that fill our minds when we think of Christianity. If you're a Christian, you've got to listen to Christian radio, positive encouraging. If you're a Christian, you've got to watch The Chosen. If you're a Christian, you got to dress up on Sundays. You got to have a whole, you know, section in your closet for Sunday best clothes. If you're a Christian, you got to eat a Chick-fil-A. <laughs> Extra credit if you have the app and you, you know, you you reach those those different statuses cuz you eat there so much. If you're a Christian, you send your kids to a Christian school or you homeschool your kids. If you're a Christian, you can't smoke, drink or chew. And you can't hang out with those who do. If you're a Christian, you have to vote for one political party over the other one. If you're a Christian, you have to disagree with science. If you're a Christian, you have to be mean to people who disagree with you. You see where I'm going with this? Christianity is cluttered. It's cluttered. And uh, the picture is, you know, imagine that there's a room in your house that's cluttered. I, uh, I mentioned uh, a garage last week because my garage, it is cluttered. And I had every intention of like, this weekend is the weekend, right? And I was going to clean my garage and have a before and after photo. And I was going to use it for this awesome sermon illustration, just kick off this new teaching series. And not even that was motivation enough for me to clean my garage. <laughs> So you just have to imagine, imagine a before and after photo. But if you were to go to declutter a room in your house or declutter a closet or declutter your garage, really what you're doing is you're, you're taking a space and you're running it through three different criteria. The first one is what needs to go. Which one, you know, what, what are the things that are, they absolutely do not belong in here. Spider web, dirt garbage, expired things, right? Mold, like what are the, maybe even hazardous or dangerous things that are being stored in your garage? Just get that stuff out of here. The second category that you must look at though is what are the things that could go in here but they don't necessarily have to go in here? I don't wanna slam all those things. I love Chick-fil-A, I, you know, we listen to Christian radio in our, in our, there's nothing wrong with those things, but the only problem is it doesn't necessarily mean that you're a Christian. It's not inherent to the gospel. It's not found in scripture. And so there are maybe some things that you would store in your garage that I don't have to store in my garage. I don't need a giant inflatable pool toy in my garage, but you might need that, right? Does that make sense? So that's the second category. And then the third category, and this is the category that we're going to be focusing on for this series, is what is absolutely necessary. 
And in fact, if there's even some of that second category in there, you're going to choose to move those things out to make room for the utmost important items. What do you need in your garage? A vehicle for me? My bikes? I'm not going to keep my bike in my bedroom, right? What are the things that you're going to intentionally clear the way so that you can make room for the most important? And that's really the heart behind this teaching series, Simple Gospel, getting back to the essentials of our faith. Because the reality is, when Christianity becomes cluttered, at best what happens is it prevents the world from seeing Christ through the Christian subculture. That's best case scenario. Worst case scenario is we actually have some harmful or damaging things that we've attached to Christianity, and it's doing the opposite of witnessing to the world. It's actually preventing people from coming to Christ. It's causing damage or harm to the world. You see Jesus call out the Pharisees and the scribes in Matthew 23 for doing this very thing. They've cluttered a true faith in God. Matthew 23, 4, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. So you have this religious group, this hyper-religious, self-righteous group, and they're adding rules upon rules upon rules. They're cluttering faith. Later on in Matthew 23, you can read that chapter later if you want. It's a list of woes, words of judgment against the religious leaders. And Jesus says this in Matthew 23, 13, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. He's not happy here. Okay, this is not happy, Jesus. For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. What's Jesus' problem with a cluttered faith? It prevents people from being welcomed into the kingdom of heaven. This is why it is serious, this idea of the simple gospel. It's a big deal. I wanna give you just one example. This is a real life example. Uh, we get emails and phone calls to our church all the time from people who wonder about our service times or our theology or just they want to find out more about our church. And we received one about a year and a half ago. And it was someone from the neighborhood. And uh, they were interested in our church. They, you know, they probably received the little postcard mailers, you know, that we send out around Easter and Christmas. Maybe they saw our sign, and they, they, sent, they took the time to send an email to the church because they said, initially, we were really excited. We, you know, we heard there was a, a new church and the new name and all this sort of stuff, and we wanted to see what all the buzz was about. And so we walked by, just walked by the sidewalk in the middle, uh, it, it, during services one Sunday, and they saw one bumper sticker on one vehicle that was a derogatory political statement towards an opposing political party. And they said, we will never come to your church. One bumper sticker, one vehicle, and I'm not even sure that that's a person who attends our church. Woe to you who are shutting people out of the kingdom of heaven. That's one story that illustrates the importance of getting back to the simple gospel, decluttering Christianity. In this series, we're going to talk about three questions over the next four weeks. We're going to answer these three questions. Question one, who is Jesus? 
Question two, what is the gospel? And question three, we're gonna spend two weeks on question three, how do we live? Today, we're gonna tackle question one, who is Jesus? We'll be in Matthew 16. If you have a Bible, open to Matthew chapter 16. It will be our teaching text for the entire time today. Who is Jesus? Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Jesus is referring to himself as the Son of Man. In Mark's version, he just say, who do people say that I am? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Who do people say that Jesus is? During the ministry of Christ, the popular opinion, the consensus is that Jesus is a prophet. He must be a prophet. Every one of those names that are listed by the disciples, John the Baptist, Elijah, and Jeremiah, they all fit into that category of a prophet. See, John was a forerunner to the Messiah. He had a ministry of preparing the way for the savior of the world. At this point, by Matthew chapter 16, he's been executed by Herod. He's been put to death. And Herod is fearful that John the Baptist is actually raised from the dead. You can read this in Matthew 14. And he's you know, gonna come haunt him or he's out to get him. Elijah was a prophet in the Old Testament. And in Malachi chapter four, it was said that Elijah would return before the Messiah would come. And in Luke chapter one, we find out that John the Baptist was the prophet in the spirit of Elijah. He was the forerunner to the Messiah. Jeremiah, we're not really sure exactly why people would think that Jesus is Jeremiah. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. We know that Jesus himself at times is a man of sorrows. Perhaps that comes into play. I think Maybe it's something else. Jeremiah had a prophetic ministry during and before and leading up to the Babylonian exile, and he prophesied the fall of Jerusalem. Jesus Christ himself, during his ministry, prophesied the fall of Jerusalem, which would take place in AD 70. And so perhaps it's Jesus's words of judgment against the city of Jerusalem that caused people to believe that he was Jeremiah. And then the other category is just, or one of the prophets, just another prophet. Interestingly, no one was saying in the first century during the ministry of Christ that he's just a nice guy. No one could say that because he walked around and he performed many miracles. He had a powerful ministry. So the consensus, like, it would be absurd for you to say, oh yeah, this is just another nice guy, and then he goes and he heals a blind man, or he feeds thousands of people out of nowhere, right? And, and his teachings were amazing, and his miracles were amazing, and so they couldn't help but see his power. They just explained it by saying he, he's gotta be a prophet. But today, what have we done? We've made Jesus out to be nice. He's just a nice guy who holds baby sheep. He's always got a clean robe on. Like we've made him just this nice guy, this friendly neighborhood Jesus. That's who people said that Jesus was. He's one of the prophets. What about today? Who do people say that Jesus is today? 92% of Americans, according to a Barnes survey, believe that Jesus of Nazareth is an actual person who existed. 
And to the other 8% who still aren't sure, all I would say to that is the fact that Jesus of Nazareth is at least a historical figure is one of the most well-attested facts in all of human history. I mean, we have more evidence that Jesus Christ existed than George Washington existed. All of history hinges on the existence of, you you at least have to acknowledge there's a a human being named Jesus who lived around the first century, Jesus of Nazareth, who who did exist. Um, But for for those 92%, there's much discrepancy between, okay, so who is Jesus? To modern-day Jews, Jesus is another one of the rabbis. To Muslims, Jesus is a prophet. To Hindus, Jesus is one of the Ishtas, or one of the embodiments of you know, the lowercase g gods. To Buddhists, Jesus is an enlightened teacher. Maybe not the enlightened one like Buddha, but he's one of the enlightened teachers. If you're new age, Jesus is a moral teacher. He has good sayings that you can put on greeting cards and, and write on your bathroom mirror. To the Mormons, Jesus is the firstborn spirit child of the divine father and divine mother. To Jehovah's Witnesses, Jesus is actually the equivalent of Michael the Archangel. And to the atheists, Jesus is just another guy where most of what we believe about Jesus to an atheist is greatly exaggerated, blown out of proportion, and most of it's probably not true. Yeah, maybe there is a person named Jesus who lived, but there's so much myth, and it's 2,000 years ago and so far removed. Now, why do we talk about, why does Jesus even ask this question? Who, does, you know, who do people, who does culture say that I am? It's important for us to understand the starting place when we're in conversations with people from differing worldviews. But the reality is majority rules doesn't change the truth. Popular opinion doesn't change the truth about who Jesus actually is. And so we must ask this question, who do people say that Jesus is? But the question that we really need to be concerned with today is the next question that Jesus poses in Matthew 16, verse 15. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Who do you say that Jesus is? Everyone say you. It's actually an emphatic you in the text. Who do you say that Jesus is? No one can answer this for you except yourself. Your parents can't answer who is Jesus for you. Your church can't answer it for you. Your nation can't answer it for you. You, every single human being, must give an answer to this question, who is Jesus? Who do you say that he is? And Peter answers, and for a guy who is often making mistakes and putting his foot in his mouth, his answer is 100% correct. So much so that Jesus capitalizes like a good teacher on this moment and says, yes, finally, Peter, you've given the correct answer. And there's two elements of Peter's answer that we can learn from if we are going to answer this question correctly as well. The first one is that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is 
the Christ. The Greek word Christos is a translation of the Hebrew Messiah, which means anointed one. We would say in English, the king. Jesus is the king, not in a political sense, but in a sense that we need a savior, this kingly figure who would come from heaven to earth and save the people from our sins. There are over 300 messianic prophecies recorded all throughout the Old Testament scriptures. And the very first one is found in Genesis 3:15. After Adam and Eve sin, God goes to them and he gives them the consequences for their actions. And this prophecy is specifically spoken to the serpent. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the very first of, some scholars you know, total it to over 450 prophecies, but there's at least over 300 messianic prophecies that there's this snake killer who's gonna come. Someone who, he, the seed of woman, will come and crush the head of the serpent. Who is he? Well, that's what the rest of the Old Testament is about. The rest of the Old Testament could be summarized by the simple line, the king is coming. The king is coming. And with each new era of history and each new prophecy, we get a little bit better picture of exactly who this person is going to be. You find out where he's going to be born in Bethlehem. You find out all of these different things about him. He's going to come from the line of David. It's going to be David's household. And Jesus ticks every single one of these boxes. He fulfilled every single one of these messianic prophecies. He is the one we've been waiting for. So when Peter says, you are the Christ, it's not because Christ is Jesus' last name. It's not. It's it's significant. It's theological significant title that he's not another prophet preparing the way for the Christ. Jesus himself is the Christ. He's the savior of the world. He's what this book has been leading up to, and he's what this book is all about. That's the first aspect of the answer. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the Christ. The second aspect is he's the Christ, the son of the living God. We can say it like this. Jesus is the son of God in flesh. I added that in flesh part. I'll tell you why I did in just a moment. It doesn't come up here in Matthew 16, but it comes up in other parts of Scripture. But Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus refers to himself in Matthew 16 as the Son of Man. That was, in Matthew's Gospel, one of Jesus' most favorite titles for himself. And I think Jesus uses this title for himself because, yes, it does hint at his unique role, but Ezekiel was also called the Son of Man. Like, like, it's a little bit theologically ambiguous. Not everyone would necessarily know what he means when he calls himself the Son of Man, but the Son of God, there's no really confusing what he means by this. He's the pre-existent second person of the Trinity, and I know the Trinity is a difficult theological concept to wrestle with, but it's essentially there's one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus said in John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. In John 14, Jesus said, when you look at me, you're looking at the Father. In Colossians 1, 6, it's by Jesus and through him all things were made. So Jesus himself, the Son, 
was never created. He's not the firstborn of a divine father and a divine mother. He himself is the one who created everything. So this is, this is huge. He's the son of God. But he's the son of God in flesh. And the reason why I don't think uh, Peter says this here is it's obvious that Jesus is in flesh when he's having this conversation with him. Does that make sense? Peter knew that. He could shake his hand. He, could, you know, he ate meals with him. He, he hung out with Jesus. But the danger, the, the uh, heretical danger in the early church was actually not so much the Son of God. It was the fact that he was in flesh. The early Gnostic heretics would actually teach people that Jesus was the eternal son, but he never had a body. They couldn't fathom the idea of God being in flesh, God bleeding, God dying, God actually being raised in a body. This is so significant that it plays a major role in the Apostle John's writings, both his gospel and his letters to the churches. And in 2 John 1, 7, you see this as a test of orthodox theology. If anyone does not say that Jesus came in the flesh, he is a deceiver and an antichrist. That's a pretty serious test of orthodoxy, okay? So I'm going to go ahead and just, you could add in flesh in parentheses if you want, but it's very, very important that we recognize not only that Jesus is the Son of God, but he's fully God and fully man. And by the way, you also do see this in Matthew's uh, gospel. Just look at the baptism of Christ from Matthew 3. This is one of the most clear pictures of not only uh, Jesus' position as the Son, but also the Trinity itself. Matthew 3, 16 through 17. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw... The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven, the Father, said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And you see Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all present in Christ's baptism. I don't know about you, but I want to agree with what God the Father says about who Jesus is. If, God the, if the heavens open and God the Father says, this is my beloved son, I want to agree, I want to say yes and amen to that. Not only that, you, look, you just look at the very next chapter in Matthew chapter 4, the devil himself says Jesus is the son of God. Matthew chapter 8, there's demons that attest, they, they, they believe, they say, what, what are you going to do to us, the son of God? They know that he's the son of God. And so the reality is, if if, if we don't acknowledge that Jesus is the son of the living God, then the devil and his demons have better theology of Jesus than we do. This is very, very important that we make the same confession that Peter makes. And Peter gets it right. And yet just moments later, he demonstrates that even though he says the right words, he doesn't fully understand the meaning behind them. Jesus begins to talk about just how he's going to save the world from its sins. He's going to suffer and die. He's not going to conquer with a war. And so Peter says, may it never be. He can't fathom this. And so Jesus goes from saying to Peter in one moment, blessed are you, right? God, the Father has revealed this to you. This is direct revelation to a few moments later when Peter is trying to have Jesus be the king without the cross. What did you remember what Jesus says? Get behind me, Satan. Did not get the right answer 
few moments later. What this reveals, though, is it reveals that you can actually answer correct questions with theology and still not fully grasp who Jesus is. You can have the right answer. You can memorize the right Bible verses. You can, you know, you can recite creeds. You can do all of that sort of stuff, and you can still be missing who Jesus really is. And I think just like Jesus said that, that God re- had revealed this this knowledge to Peter, here's what I think we can ask. Here's a prayer that I think we should pray. Ask God to reveal himself to you. Whether you're here and you're not sure who God is yet, that's a perfect prayer for you to pray. You can pray that prayer even before you believe that God exists, by the way. Ask, pray and ask God to reveal himself to you. That's one of the the best starting place prayers. But I think this is a prayer that you you can pray even if you've been a follower of Jesus for decades. God, I wanna know you more. I want to understand you more. I want to go deeper in relationship with you. Ask God to reveal himself to you. But if you're going to pray this prayer, I have a challenge for you. Don't just pray this prayer and then sit back in passivity, expecting the heavens to open and be like, he really is my beloved son. Like, don't just sit back in passivity because think about how God revealed the identity of Christ to Peter. It wasn't only through this divine, you know, direct access revelation. Peter listened to Jesus' teachings. Peter witnessed many miracles. Peter likely was even there during the baptism of Christ. And so if you're going to pray this prayer and ask God to reveal himself to you, I would also just put it upon you to listen to the words of Christ to read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We've actually been on a journey the last seven weeks as a church through a teaching series called I Am, looking at the seven I Am statements of Christ. I just want to read to you these seven I Am statements. I know that we've spent seven weeks. If you missed that teaching series, you can always go back and listen to the podcast or watch on YouTube, but listen to Jesus' perspective on who he is. In John 6, he says, I am the bread of life. He is the one who sustains us. He is the one who fulfills and satisfies our souls. In John 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Jesus makes life itself possible. He gives us revelation. He gives us truth. He gives us a picture of God's glory. Jesus in John 10, 7 says, I am the door of the sheep. He is the one who gives us access to God's kingdom and welcomes us in. In John 10, 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd He's the leader that we long for. He's the true leader who leads us in the way everlasting. In John eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Resurrection, hope, eternal life is only found in Jesus. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And that's an exclusive claim, but it's one of the most loving claims as well if it's true. He gives us he, he gives us a way back to God. He gives us the truth and he gives us the life. And in John 15, 1, I am the true vine. He's our life source and life comes from being connected to him. That's who Jesus said he was. Do you believe him? Will you put the pieces together? See, when we actually recognize the gravity of who Jesus said he was, it actually leaves us with a few options. C.S. Lewis put this to us as a trilemma in his book, Mere Christianity. He says this, either this man was and is the son of God, 
or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. This is called the Lord, liar, or lunatic trilemma. If you don't believe that Jesus is Lord, just look at his teachings and look at the kind of claims that he made. You either have to say he's a liar, like if he, if he doesn't, if he knows that he's not who he said he was and he claimed the kind of things that he claimed, then he is evil. He's gotta be evil. He's lying to us. Or he's crazy. If he actually thinks, you know, there's kind of Messiah complexes that, that people have in mental health wards. And maybe he's crazy or maybe he is truly the Lord. He's truly the Christ. He's truly the son of the living God. Don't just listen to his words. If you're gonna pray that prayer, ask God to reveal himself to you. Look at his works. Look at what he's done. Look at what he's done in the lives of billions of Christians around the world. Look at what he's done throughout church history to change people, to redeem people, to, to, for there to be reconciliation and forgiveness. Look at the miracles of Christ. Look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look at his works. Look at what John says in John 20, 30, and 31. This is kind of the purpose statement for John's gospel. It says this, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. There's, there's those lines again. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's the purpose of the miracles. So, that we, so it establishes his authority. It establishes the truth that he shared. And the gospel is that, that Jesus is the Christ. He's the son of God, but he, he's the suffering Christ who died in our place on the cross and who raised back from the grave three days later. And today, if maybe the Holy Spirit is speaking to you and revealing to you and you've asked God to reveal himself to you and he is, even as we explore this today, I wanna call on you to give your life to Christ today to put your faith in Jesus Christ today and to put your faith in Jesus through baptism. What baptism is, it's identified, it's one of the deepest ways that we can identify with Christ. Because what it represents is it represents being dunked under the water, it represents dying, going into the grave, leaving the old self, the old person behind and allowing God to raise you up into a new life in the likeness of Christ so that you might follow him with everything. And I want to encourage you to put your faith in Jesus. You can learn more about baptism or you can sign up to get baptized at our website, hillcityboise.org slash baptism. Well, Matthew continues this account in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Jesus says this, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. There's some puzzling parts of this last section. In fact, these, this pa these passages from Matthew 6, uh, 16, 18 to 20, are some of the most hotly debated, theologically loaded passages in all of the Bible. 
Churches have split over these. This is one of the, the primary uh, Protestant Catholic divides. And uh, I was very tempted to not include these verses because the series is called Simple Gospel, <laughs> not Complicated Gospel, Complex Gospel. Uh, but with the few minutes that we have left, I also don't want to miss the beauty. And, I, and if you know me, you know I'm not afraid of a little difficult theological passage. Let's not miss the point of what Jesus is saying here in his affirmation of Peter. Here's, the, here's one of the main points for us to take away from this section is that Jesus will build his church. Whose church? His church. There's a lot of debate on, you know, what does this mean? And who's the, is Peter the rock? Or what is the keys? And all this sort of stuff. Let's not miss what Jesus says. Jesus Christ is the king, and he will build his church to the point that the gates of hell itself will not overcome it. And we are a part of that church today, 2,000 years later, still empowered and led by Jesus Christ himself. He's still building his church, and that should give us confidence that all of those who have come after Peter, and Peter in some ways is the first one to make this confession, but the rest of Christianity has joined in this confession, acknowledging the true identity. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's the first question whenever I baptize someone that I ask them. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? And so every believer, that's, every true believer that's come after Peter, Peter is the forerunner, and we acknowledge that the church is still led by and empowered by Jesus Christ himself, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Now, we can't forget, though, that Jesus is making some kind of claim. So the debate, essentially, is what is the rock? Is Peter the person the rock, or is the confession that he made the rock? And in some ways... Both, there's valid arguments on both sides, right? If you're Catholic, this comes from the idea of apostolic succession and the infallibility of the Pope, and Peter has a special, you know, this special office that gets passed down generation to generation to generation to today. We're not a Catholic church. That might be a surprise to you, but we, we don't hold to that doctrine of apostolic succession. And so many Protestants have, have really kind of uh, taken this and said, it can't be, have anything to do with Peter. It has to only be the confession that, that Peter made. And yet, that just seems a little bit unnatural way to read the text, just to be honest. I'll just give you my interpretation of this, is I believe that Peter played a foundational role in starting the early church. You don't have to believe he's the first pope to admit that. And I think it's okay to take Jesus' words as saying, Listen, you're going to, Peter, you've, you were the first one to make this confession. He, maybe Jesus knows he's going to say something really, Peter's going to say something really stupid in a few moments, but he's like, hey, we'll take what we can get. <laughs> you, you, you are going to play a foundational role. And who is it in Acts 2 that delivers the gospel message in which 3,000 people respond to in baptism? Who is it? Peter. Peter. Who is it when Philip takes the gospel to Samaria and there's doubt whether the Samaritans are actually legitimately part of the church? Who is it that goes to pray and lay hands on them? It's Peter and John. Peter's there in Samaria. And who is it when the gospel goes to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10? Who is it that God reveals that the Gentiles are welcome? This is part of the mission of God to reach even the Gentiles. It's Peter. No one can argue that Peter did not play a foundational role in the early church. And I think that's what Jesus is prophesying here. 
You are Peter, and you're gonna be a, a solid rock. Now, obviously, Peter's foundational, but he is not the foundation of the church. The church is not built on Peter. The church is built on Jesus. Okay, good. There's some hesitancy there. <laughs> Woo, okay. Ephesians 2, 19 and 20. This is how I would interpret. I, I interpret Matthew 16 through the lens of what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 19 and 20. He says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. He's speaking to Gentiles who are part of the church. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of, of the apostles and the prophets. There are foundational players when it came to building the church. But Paul says, Christ himself being the cornerstone, okay? So the true foundation of the church is none other than Jesus Christ himself. And Peter, playing a type for the rest of us, makes this good confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's like that first stone laid on the foundation. And every single believer who's come after Peter who makes that same good confession, guess what? We're also fellow heirs. We're also another brick being laid into the building and we're being built into this beautiful temple, the household of God. That's what I think he means when he says the rock. Now, what about the keys? This is another weird thing. We gotta figure out what's the rock mean? What does the keys mean? I will give you the keys to the, to the kingdom of heaven, whatever you bind, whatever you lose. Well, again, very, very briefly, with the hopes of not overcomplicating things, binding and loosing was a very common saying for a rabbi's interpretation on the scriptures. So different rabbis would take different laws written in the Old Covenant, and they would either say how binding or how loose it was. Binding means, you know, it's like prohibitions and permissions. Does that make sense? And so like a Sabbath would be a very, a very great example of this, that some rabbis would be, uh, would be very binding in how they would teach the Sabbath. You can only walk this many steps. You can only do this. You can't even mow your lawn on the Sabbath. And then other rabbis, like Jesus, would be a lot more loose with those things. It's basically, how, how, how loose are you? Is it okay to walk through a grain field and just pick up grain off the ground and eat it? Jesus permitted his disciples to do that, so he was more loose in his keeping of the Sabbath than some of the legalistic rabbis of his day. What I, mean, what I think that this means is Jesus is acknowledging not only the foundational role that Peter would play in preaching the gospel and beginning the church, but he's talking about the key role that Peter would play in spreading the way of Jesus, which at the end of the day, another way of talking about the way of Jesus is explaining his teachings and how do we follow him in real life. Beyond just like, this is what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, somebody has to say, what does it mean? How do we follow it? And if you want two great examples of this, you can read again in Acts chapter 10, not only when the gospel goes to the Gentiles, but Peter has a vision from the Spirit that says that food that used to not be permissible, it was unclean food, is now clean and everyone can eat it. That's binding and loosing, do you see that? Or in Acts chapter 15, there's a question about how Jewish somebody needs to be if they were Gentiles before they come to Christ. It's the Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15. And Peter gets up and he explains that you know, they, can, they can actually welcome Gentile Christians into their midst. And so Peter not only played a foundational role in starting the church, but he also played a key role in spreading the way of Jesus. And in looking at this, what we find out is if you remember from Matthew 23 that we looked at earlier, that the teachers of Jesus's day 
were using their keys improperly. They were binding people to the point that Jesus says, you're slamming the door to the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. And what we see Peter do and what we see the church fathers do and what good preachers should do is use the keys that God has entrusted to us not to keep people out through rules and legalism, but to actually show people Jesus. So here's here's the last point for us today. Bring someone to Jesus. If you've made the good confession, you've made that same confession as Peter, you've found the Messiah, you've been entrusted in some ways to share the kingdom of heaven to your neighborhood, to your family, would you bring someone to Jesus? Don't use the authority or any power that he's given you to keep people out. Let me remind you how Peter got his name Peter because he wasn't born uh, Peter. His name was Simon, son of Jonah. And look at, look at this, John chapter one, verse 42. This is how Peter came to find Christ and came to have his new name. He first found his brother. This is Andrew. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which John explains means the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus and Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John, and you shall be called Cephas, which is Aramaic, which means Peter. There's no Simon Peter without Andrew. There's no Peter making this good confession. There's no rock. There's no keys entrusted to him without his brother, who we really don't know very much about at all. And you know, he's one of the disciples, Andrew. But what did he do? What's the most significant thing that Andrew did? He said that line, he brought him to Jesus. We found the Messiah. That's what God is entrusting to you. Would you be the Andrew to someone in your life? Maybe it's to a family member who doesn't know Christ yet. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's a coworker. If you found the Messiah, would you bring someone to him? Let's stand as we worship our Savior. Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.